0: It's Friday, Real Talkers. A happy Friday to you on this March 12th. Samuel G. Brooks, I do the worst job, Sam, the technical producer of this show. If you're just tuning in for the first time, if you just heard of Real Talk yesterday, and you're tuning in uh, out of curiosity, maybe morbid curiosity, considering the tone of some of the discourse yesterday on, on social media, Samuel G. Brooks, the technical producer of this show, I've been trying my best to keep a running tally on the number of shows that we've done. Because we want to celebrate. And you'll give us the heads up. I know you'll give me the heads up. As we approach. We can do like episode 99. We're, we're yep. proudly based out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So we'll probably. Like you and I will probably tuck our blazers. For episode 99. That makes sense. In yeah. a tribute to the great one. Absolutely. And, and and the great hockey dad. Walter Gretzky. Wayne's Wayne's dad. So maybe episode 99. We'll do something cool. And then episode 100. We're mid 70s now. I kind of like how in, in Edmonton. Um. 99 is
1: sometimes almost a bigger milestone than 100 you know what i mean yeah 100 percent,
0: or should i say 99 i don't know oh there you go we've got a great show in store today uh you let me know when our first guest is ready to rock you and roll betcha. we've got two coming up in the first half hour what our two guests have in common in the first half hour they probably have lots in common you know they're both university professors they're both you know established and respected in their fields They both teach at universities in Alberta. Dr. Melanie Thomas at the University of Calgary, Dr. Elise Gotel at the University of Alberta. But what's especially interesting in the context of their appearances here on Real Talk is that yesterday morning, both of them criticized a panel that we had talking about bias on university campuses. Does it exist uh, against conservatives? And it was actually a great conversation and a great panel. And I'm really glad that we had it. But both of our guests coming up, uh, described it. I would. I would argue, as a matter of fact, almost dismissed it as a mantle. And I talked about that yesterday. <clears throat> as a matter of fact, I ran my mouth for a few minutes, and and it, and it seemed to resonate with a few people. We have, um, I don't know, two hundred plus emails that I've received. Messages. My phone was blowing up yesterday. Text messages. Uh, some of you just think I am an absolute jerk, and some of you think that I absolutely nailed it. And I'm going to read some of your comments today i wanted to give uh professor thomas and professor gotel the floor and uh wanted to say listen here on real talk we're obviously not afraid of tough conversations in fact that's why we always wind up in it in the mix getting our knuckles all scuffed up and our knees dirty is is because we're we're you know we're fighting it out we're sinking our teeth into issues that people care about we're asking unpopular questions and we hit things head on and that's why you subscribe to this show. And that's why you show up every single morning at 830. That's kind of the whole point, right? So yesterday we're getting into this and, and uh, you know, some folks are arguing that, you know, there, there needed to be a woman on the panel yesterday. You're probably familiar with all this. We talked about it yesterday. I want to make sure I provide some context. And I sort of thought, well, I mean... You know, we have women on the show all the time. We make a very conscious effort to ensure that there's equitable representation. And I felt a little tacky yesterday pointing out that, like, you know, last Friday we had an all-woman panel. Like, you know, we've obviously, on International Women's Day, I don't expect to be patted on the back for having a whole great lineup of of smart women. But, you know, um, Tuesday we've done it. We've had all, like, we've had a whole bunch. I don't need to sit and go into it. I mean, the, the nice thing about us doing, you know, a visual live show every day live on YouTube is you can go back, you can subscribe to the Real Talk channel, to the Ryan Jesperson channel, and you can just look. I mean, just look at the shows if you want. You know that, So I mean, you can do your own research. Somebody wrote in the, the other day and sort of started breaking it down for us. They said, this is how we've analyzed your show on how many conservatives you've talked to, how many progressives, how many men, how many women. I thought it was kind of interesting. Um, I don't know if it's real. We haven't vetted it. Maybe I'll put it in front of our team at Y Station. Our partners our official research and strategy partners. It might be interesting data to know. Because to this point, everything that, that we monitor is essentially anecdotal. I don't have a running tally. I don't have a list of, 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 of how many indigenous uh, people have been on the uh, panel. I don't have a list of, of, of how many people with, with disabilities have been on the panel. I, I haven't necessarily kept track of it.' It's, it's kind of an awareness more than anything. but But
1: go ahead. what I was going to say is, like I think keeping a list is kind of counterproductive. Like that's tokenizing people. Well, And it feels, you know it I feels mean? a little bit gross. Yeah. So, like, we shouldn't have a list. that's not the point.
0: yeah. Bang on. uh, but we're aware of it, of course. Um, <clears throat> Let me give you an example. I mean, here, you know, here's another tacky example. And, and you know, I, again, I'm just waiting until—is Dr. Thomas ready to go? Uh,
1: Dr. Thomas is on. We're still waiting for Dr. Gattel.
0: Okay, so that's fine. We're t- yeah. I'm talking to them separately. Oh, so okay, does, cool. So it Sounds doesn't matter. Yeah, As a yeah, matter of yeah. fact, and I'm not even going to talk about this. Who cares? It's anecdotal. Yeah. I was waiting until sure. Melanie's ready to rock, so let's Sounds go. Sounds good. Uh, right. th- this show is presented, of course, every single day by the team at Bitcoin Well. You know that, our title and presenting sponsor. I don't want to call this the year of crypto. Because you could argue, based on the numbers, that 2013 was the year of crypto, and then a whole bunch of other people are going to say, no way, dude. Like, 2031 is the year of crypto, 2040 is the year, who knows? But the journey has been fascinating to watch from 2020 into 2021. Do I understand any of it? Absolutely not. When I have questions, where do I go? To the team at Bitcoin. Well, they've got Bitcoin ATMs across Canada, proudly headquartered in Alberta. You can find them under the Sponsors tab, right at the top, at RyanJesperson.com.
2: Real talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson.
0: Dr. Melanie Thomas, uh, professor of political science at the University of Calgary, yesterday tweeting, uh, you know, you know, after I had my say at the start of the show, she says, "I appreciate where Jesperson's coming from here, but I also think the reasons why he's grumpy miss the point about why someone like me is grumpy." She went on to say, you know, one of the things that are correct, you know, some folks are afraid to really dig into the idea that universities might be biased against conservatives. You know, another thing, folks get an idea that public-facing shows, media, that they, they, you know, they think of the best voices to address the topic like we do. She says, another thing that I think is totally fair, the idea that slamming a segment of a show decontextualized, in other words, one hour out of a body of work for the guest composition, it's easy for this kind of critique to be lazy and superficial. So I get where Ryan's grump is coming from, but... I don't think the reasons why I raised concerns, Melanie says, with this particular question in general are covered by any of that. Well, what does a good talk host do? Reaches out to someone like Dr. Melanie Thomas and says, well, then let's cover what needs to be covered. And I'm very grateful that the professor of political science at the University of Calgary has agreed to make time for us this morning. Welcome to the show. I think we might have you on mute, Melanie. Just we'll, we'll check real quick. We'll get you off mute. And then I want to make sure that you have a chance to, to have your say. Can we hear you? Sam I will Sam's gonna work on gonna it, work worry, on it. Yeah. okay, no worries, so here's what I'm getting at, and i'll I'll fill some time here, but with something meaningful, I understand people saying there needs to be representation uh you know women represented on panels and, and like obviously, yeah, that's why we do all the time, and it's because we care, and then you, you would also say but there also needs to be representation of visible minorities and there needs to be representation of people that lean left, and there needs to be representation of conservatives. You're certainly not going to have a conversation about whether or not there's a bias against conservatives without a conservative in the mix. There needs to be representation from uh, people that... Look different. There needs to be present, uh, you know, representation. You know, if we're going to talk about things like education, um, if you we were going to talk about, for example, homeschools without ever talking to a homeschooler, it would be inequitable. You got to have all these conversations. If we're talking about the health care system, if we're talking about a sales tax, it's important to hear different perspectives. And so I thought that we had a pretty good mix yesterday. That panel didn't happen to have a woman on it, but it did happen to have people from three different backgrounds, three different ethnicities living in three different cities. Providing three different, uh, you know, messages as experienced know? through there. Sam, I'm hearing her. Can, or we're all hearing her, I think. Is she ready to go? Melanie's ready to go? So you're going to get different. Is... Uh, just hang on one second, Sam. We're going to get different perspectives with guests based on where they're coming from. Right. So a journalist uh, is going to provide his perspective. And, and could I have dug up a female female journalist? Maybe and, and probably. But Stephen Hsu, uh who, you know, who happens to be Asian Canadian as well. I mean, it feels so weird and tacky to point these things out. But I was saying to some critics yesterday, they're saying you need to have I go, OK, so whose perspective would you have swapped out? Whose perspective didn't matter to the conversation yesterday that we were having? Well, you should have. Had, well, so maybe we'll follow up which is exactly what we're doing right now. And I'm grateful that Dr. Melanie Thomas has made time to to join us. Professor, thanks and welcome to the show. I'm glad we got over the hump here
2: this is what happens when I try to use my fancy teaching microphone (laughs) is good for radio and then it doesn't work when I'm actually on something. Well, let me
0: say it sounds fabulous. So it's working great, but listen, doctor, (laughs) I, I essentially, honestly, I, kind of, I mean, I like dialogue, but I kind of want to yield the floor. Uh, I want to, I want to give you an opportunity to talk about why, you know, you and I were both riled up yesterday, no hard feelings. Uh, but, but what, what, what was it that, that was sort of, uh, You know as we say in alberta sometimes or maybe as they said a long time ago what what was the burr under your saddle coming from
2: so mine comes from uh the inside working inside a university to be honest uh and so for me uh the reason why i objected to the content of a panel about um bias against anyone to be frank uh on a university campus being all men is that i am acutely aware of the fact that I don't think most of the men that I work with actually understand the systemic biases that make it more difficult for me or anybody else from an equity-seeking group uh, to do the same job that we're all hired to do. Uh, And uh, where my anger comes from, and I'll just be honest and say that it really does make me angry, is that uh, that was one example of several that just happened to happen that particular week uh and so for me what this comes down to is uh i don't necessarily expect everybody from outside institutions like universities and i think other big public institutions hold the same way like i think uh people outside of something like for example ahs don't understand some of the nuances of being inside of ahs but i think inside of higher education and universities in particular uh the The way that anybody who's like, the the places are designed to, to promote and support a very particular kind of cis heterosexual white guy. Uh, And it is abundantly apparent um in how somebody like me or any of my colleagues who aren't white or any of my colleagues who are queer any of my it's really clear with our indigenous colleagues um that the places are systemically biased uh and i think one of the things that i find frustrating is that like a couple things i find frustrating the um uh like the obliviousness to which i have several colleagues like the the obliviousness of like the institution to this including the individuals who happen to be in the institution routinely gets my goat um but the other thing that i find really uh like angering about the question itself is that the idea of focusing the bias on conservatives in particular um is deliberately designed to um question the presence of uh women or black folks or indigenous folks or any kind of racialized studies that doesn't focus on white people or anything that actually expands the idea of sexuality precisely because of a concept called status threat. Uh, And when we look at the uh, how status threat gets mobilized in politicized contexts, and I would argue the moment you start talking about conservatives on campus, you're talking about a politicized context. What it is, is it's about preserving Status quo uh, and power hierarchies, and so every time I hear it's so hard to be a conservative on campus, part of me is like, I don't know. I can check the sunshine lists and see who's making the most money, and it's it's it it is it, not somebody who looks like me. It's not somebody. It's not my indigenous colleagues, right? Like, so if we're gonna be talking about like how hard. It is to be someone on campus like I, I i want to have a really like wide-ranging conversation about that and i feel like focusing just on one particular part of the ideological spectrum particularly the part that just gets really mad at us when we say hey maybe you should actually read the scholarship that we produce in a peer-reviewed kind of way because it is relevant to some of the stuff that you want to say and it actually like empirically debunks a bunch of the reasons why you think that this is a problem things along those lines uh when yeah like when that question still gets privileged um because it's privileging the people who are already privileged on campus uh and then i see a panel where like i'm pretty confident that uh i mean i no disrespect to my colleagues but i'm pretty confident that they don't like some of the stuff you don't know it until you actually have to consistently go through it right like i don't know Uh, How many of my own departmental colleagues know how many times I have to take my office door off the website because I've gotten some kind of threat because someone, almost uniformly, a conservative man, takes objection to my presence simply by having the job, right? Uh, Or like, here's a really interesting story that exemplifies, exemplifies this. I had a student or somebody who wanted to be a potential student who uh, I had said no to because uh, they were asking me to supervise a project that was, I didn't think particularly interesting, nor did it, like it objectively did not fit into into my expertise. So I said, sorry, I wouldn't be the best person for you. Um, You'll have to go find somebody else. And so this individual uh, got very angry and threatened violence. And so at the time, uh, it was like a kind of indeterminate kind of thing. And so I went to my office colleagues uh, and said, hey, this happened um over the next couple of weeks can you just be particularly like just vigilant about like if you hear anything that might seem even a little bit um like aggressive or a little bit atypical or something along those lines because we all work with our doors open so could you just like pop your head in and see like if there's something going on just because this has happened um all of my office neighbors at that time were men um two were like 100 percent didn't know this was happening, would be really glad to do that. The third actually laughed at me and said, oh, the feminist needs the men to come rescue her, right?
3: Hmm.
2: So when I see a mantle about like how hard it is to be a conservative on campus, and like I think uniformly we're talking about um, Conservative men, to be honest, like I, I'll just like I'll just name it, uh, and it's part of it is because I happen to be in the political science department at the University of Calgary. Like I know our reputation, I know the Calgary School, I know that's the image that people have in mind. Your faculty, your about. faculty,
0: as I described it yesterday, has been the petri dish of Canadian conservatism for about thirty years.
2: Except that it hasn't been that for quite some time, hmm. right? And yeah. so I think a lot of the blowback that I get is because people anticipate that because of where I happen to work that will structure how I think, as opposed to my training, uh, my own like approach to scholarship things along those lines. Um, But what really gets me about this is that uh, like the like part of this is, I think, a larger like polarized political project about attacking Uh, places where there actually is a lot of work that's gone in to put space for, uh, to make space to study things seriously like gender and race and sexual orientation and disabilities and what that all means. I think part of that is like a really clear political project and phrasing the question about conservative bias on campus um, plays right into that um, because that's the Uh, The idea is that, well, yeah, it it plays right into that polarization project. Um, The other thing is that through these experiences and through uh, looking, even just doing work with respect to equity or diversity or inclusion on campus, it's really clear that these are old institutions that are not designed to uh, get rid of some of these bigger power barriers. Uh, And I think that it's hard for people to see the university as something other than a meritocracy when they haven't like run into one of those headlong or if they've been like promoted on a glass escalator right like Mm -hmm. the 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 expectations in terms of administrative service for um, anybody who isn't a white guy. (laughs) I feel like I'm picking on white guys, but like, this is the thing, women do way more service than do men. Um, what we ask of our indigenous colleagues, because we are serious about things like enacting the truth and reconciliation, or we want to at least give a show that we're serious about enacting things like the truth and reconciliation commission, uh, it puts an incredibly heavy burden on, burden on them that like, you don't know, unless you're actually either in the same rooms or um, uh, to be frank, keeping really good data on who's asked to do what, and so this is where, it, like, in listening to the preamble, it's not tokenizing to keep good data. Um, you can't understand trends without keeping really good, really disaggregated. Yeah, data. Yeah, I'm
0: just saying, and Melanie, that if I bring in Dr. Jared yeah. Wesley, who's a renowned and intelligent and, and very impressive professional, and I tick the box for biracial because Dr. Wesley mm-hmm. came out, or Stephen Zhu comes on yesterday because he's a, uh, an investigative journalist that's been published across the country and has done great work on, on Canadian campuses for a number of years. He's one, he's one of the renowned investigative journalists in that field. And I tick off the box that I had an Asian on on the show uh it's gauche and it's gross but we are aware as part of our you know they call them the sops like our standard operating procedures are that we are hyper aware of this what i'm picking up from you and i and let me know can i just say though that my point
2: about data is that the same rationale is used to not do uh Gather any kind of equity information on applicants versus hires versus retention versus recruitment. And so, my I want to make it like really clear that the things that make me grumpy here are about um, universities as institutions. So, uh, what I am advocating for, like for universities to keep like. A lot of really good um, disaggregated data about all equity-seeking groups and like how they fit into the institution and what their experiences are. This might not be analogous for every kind of organization, um, but I certainly reject the idea that for institutions like this, um, that it would be gauche for them to do that. Uh, to be completely frank, if we actually did that really well now, um, we could just do a quick data report and it would take the like uh i guess it depends on how you define conservative and how you define bias but it would it would kind of kill the question before it started Um, i mean if you actually really look at this like these are biased institutions but it's it's not in the way that that question like directs where you would look for it
0: yeah and and i appreciate your comments and and i'm grateful for you sharing your experience i mean one thing i'll point out is that you've said you know i don't know about the conversation about you know is there bias against conservatives on campus you know, we should be talking about is there, you know, where is bias on campus? And I agree with you. And you know what we could do is, as we've done before, like on the coal file is the first example that comes to mind, is a series of shows driven by audience and expert mm-hmm. opinion. Uh, maybe one day we talk about, is there biased against disabled people? Is there is there bias against indigenous people? Is there biased against people at different socioeconomic levels? Maybe we do this over the course of several months. And actually, maybe we impact big change. You know, yesterday's, <clears throat> yesterday's panel was was one panel. One hour on one show. And the question was based on the assertion that was published in a national newspaper. We get the author of that piece. We bring on somebody to basically drag him as Dr. Wesley did for an hour straight, um, which, you know. Wasn't really surprising to the person who produced the panel and put it together. uh, And then a journalist who's looked into the issue. So I would be more than happy. I would love, as a matter of fact, this entire half hour is going to be, is there bias against women? Or let's talk about the bias against women, perhaps, on Canadian university campuses. And I'm grateful for your voice on it. I busted yeah. you. I got you caught half coffee swig. My apologies. <laughs> um, Doctor, yeah. I, you know, I, mean- I, I want to say hi to, Le- to uh, Professor gotel but I want to give you a chance to sort of give us one final thought, something to think about today. Is and, you know, People are going to continue thinking about this, including me, obviously mm-hmm. through the weekend.
2: Yeah, so the pitch I want to make is the, I like the idea of doing a deep dive into like any equity seeking group to see where the, uh, uh, where the barriers and the problems and the biases are and like what institutional responses are good, which ones are inadequate, I think this is all a great idea. The other thing that's really clear from the peer reviewed scholarship on this though is that these identities multiply, uh, and they lead to different experiences depending on. um, uh, what uh, what holds for for various groups. And so one of the things I'll say as a white woman is that as the, this is the equity seeking group that is most readily accommodated on campus. And yet I can still point to instances where uh, there's no support. Uh, or no understanding for the the kinds of challenges that I encounter when I'm doing, and I'm really explicitly focusing on like peer-reviewed research or even teaching. Like we know, teaching evaluations are really sexist and really racist, and yet, like, and so like getting our employers to acknowledge it um, is one thing. Getting them to like not make us do them anymore is is quite another and like there, there's real reluctance like so can you imagine any other context where you can be like that thing super sexist super racist this is about all it, it captures but we're still going to use it to evaluate how you do your job hmm. right like so in, in this context for me as like white women are the um the best represented underrepresented group on say canadian university campus campuses and it's like this is the depth of the problem that i see sure it suggests that what it is for like other groups, folks who aren't white, folks who are queer, um, indigenous folks, anybody who's got an invisible disability, mm-hmm. like that, it suggests that the problem is acute. And I think I would be here for a, a big public spotlight and a lot of public accountability for what institutions could be doing, but aren't on these issues. Uh, and I think that's a much more productive conversation.
0: Doctor, I'm really, uh, very appreciative of your time here today and your perspective. And obviously we know we'll talk to you again on the show, uh, sometime soon. Have a great weekend and thanks again. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You as well. Have a great
0: day. You got it. That's Dr. Melanie Thomas, a professor of political science at the university of Calgary. Wanted to take this uh, chance to uh, remind you that the team at park power is Powering our Real Talk RJ hashtag I haven't even had a chance to look at it yet Frankly I'm not going to be really looking at the hashtag Very much through, through the first bit of the show Because I'm really focusing on these conversations But that's your best way uh, To make sure that in live Real time if you're watching this show Or listening to this show that we see what you want to Contribute to the conversation Park Power dangles the promo code 2021 real talk At parkpower.ca If you punch that in right now 70 bucks off Your first power bill Uh, could be electricity, natural gas, Internet. They do it all and they give back to the communities in which they live and work at Park Power. I've known our next guest for for many years. I've spoken with her for many years. Uh, Yesterday, I was a little annoyed with her, and she was a little annoyed with me. And uh, I'm uh, very grateful that she's made time to join us here on the show. She's a a professor of uh, gender and women's studies uh, at the University of Alberta, Dr. Lise Gotell. Appreciate you being here, doctor. Welcome.
3: It's great to be here, Ryan.
0: Um, I wanted to give... I'm uh,
3: I'm all about... Conversation, so I'm I'm happy to have the opportunity to actually speak to
0: you. Yes, and and I appreciate that. And you and I have spoken many times through the years, and and I consider you a close personal friend. Although I know you said on Twitter you didn't feel like I treated you like one yesterday. Um, I took it to be honest like a punch to the gut uh, when a couple of pretty high profile professors, yourself included, dismissed what this is my feeling, my impression, our panel yesterday before it even happened as a mantle, but. Uh, Dr. Thomas just made some great points and I, and I would love to essentially, um, at this point, give you the floor to, to give you a chance to say what you need to say and why most importantly, you believe that, uh, yesterday's panel in composition fell short.
3: Right. Well, thanks. And again, happy to have the opportunity. And, uh, yes, I've been on your, your older, old show a, a number of times. I always said yes, whenever you invited me and, uh, Levi contributed to a lot of interesting discussions on your show. Also have to say that I'm I'm pretty uh, impressed with what you've been able to do with your podcast. It's uh, you've uh, it, it's a it's a wonderful forum for a diversity of views. I just think it really did fall short yesterday. Now, when it comes to manuals, <laughs> this is a huge problem in, in academia in in many fields. Uh, uh, there's this uh, wonderful uh, Tumblr uh, uh, blog uh, where someone has uh, uh, started a, a blog or a Tumblr that's, um, congrats, you've got an all male panel. Um, because this is, as I said, a pervasive problem in academia where men's voices are held up as being the voice of expertise and authority. And it's really caused a lot of, uh, uh, prominent voices in organizations to take firm stances. So, for example, the National Institutes of Health in the U.S., the European Commission uh, have uh, explicit policies where they, they will not hold or participate in manuals. Um, in addition, the problem was highlighted in the scientific journal Nature. Um, so, I mean, I think that uh, when, when I saw that you had an all-male panel to discuss this issue, which has particular ramifications for women academics in the humanities and social sciences, I just had an immediate reaction to it. And I flipped off uh, a tweet saying, I think you can do better. And that's what my, my tweet said. I didn't object to uh, you having a conversation about conservative bias. In academia. I listened uh, to the podcast yesterday. I, I found it interesting, but I think it would have been enriched to have a woman's voice on that panel.
0: Yeah. And I, I wouldn't disagree with you that, that it would be enriched to have a woman's voice on the panel. Um, and, and I think every panel would be enriched by ensuring that, you know, the more voices uh, or the, at least the more voices with experience and, and an articulate nature would add to anything. Um, let me say this. If I was putting on, you know, for example, a conference uh, and and welcomed, you know, nothing but men up on a panel, that that might be an issue when, you know, one person is producing and hosting, you know, uh, you know, 17 live hours of content every single week on a podcast and bringing, you know, between two and nine guests every morning, you are bound to at some point have a panel that has three men. In this case and i will continue to point it out uh the panel featured one white guy one biracial guy and one asian canadian guy and i think that they also bring interesting perspectives from from their lived experience now here's the deal as i said to professor thomas and i'll say it to you too i'm so grateful that the both of you have agreed to come here because what we've established is that this alleged bias against conservatives whether or not it actually exists is not, is far from, and certainly doesn't seem to be the most important uh, conversation to have around bias on university campuses. And, and you and Melanie appearing here today is enriching our understanding of this. So so when we talk about bias against women, I mean, Professor Thomas just explained to us how she's got to have her colleagues looking out, asking them to watch her back. I mean, like threats of violence, I mean, all kinds of, of really troubling Uh, scenarios. Where do you see this manifesting itself? I mean, what do you think that people need to be more aware of in the context of bias on university campuses?
3: Well, first of all, I, I, I do think that it's important for us to acknowledge the wider context, right? You know, so we're, you know, we're in a province that, in my view, has some pretty troubling politics where Uh, The governing party actually employs people (laughs) to troll people like me on academia. Uh, And uh, women academics have been particularly harassed and and targeted by the issues managers and press secretaries. You know, I've been, uh, Melanie Thomas has been. So I think it's important to understand that, you know, we we exist in a, a very conservative context where... It's actually progressive voices that um, experience uh, targeting and, and harassment. And, and so, uh, you know, that's a really, really important point that, that needs to be taken into account. Um, you know, as uh, Jared Wesley said yesterday, this, this study that uh, you were talking about yesterday about anti conservative bias is, you know, it's got a lot of methodological flaws. It, it wasn't a peer reviewed study. In my view, it is not uh, the, the really important issue that, that we are facing uh, on university campuses in Alberta. I mean, the decimation decimation of post-secondary funding is the, the prime issue that, that we are facing at the moment. Um, but, you know, I share experiences like Melanie's. I, uh, uh, f- uh, several years ago, was involved in this uh, wonderful campaign called Don't Be That Guy. It was a we produced this, this really great award-winning uh, social marketing campaign against uh, sexual assault. Um, it was a collaboration between Edmonton Police Services, the Red Cross, the Sexual Assault Center of Edmonton, my department. Um, and men's rights activists in the city uh, uh, distorted one of the uh, the, the ads. Uh, to say just because you uh, regret a one night stand doesn't mean it it's rape, right? Um, and this this poster implied that false reporting was a huge problem. So I did a lot of media to respond to that, and in response, uh, they slapped my face on a poster, put it up around town, uh, published this defamatory blog post about me, and I started receiving. E- email threats, uh, threats on my, my telephone in my office, to the point that the support staff in uh, my department were, were frightened and so we uh, they insisted that the, the, the hallway door to our offices be locked because they felt that their safety was being threatened by this campaign of harassment. Um, also, I'll tell you another story, I mean, you know, that, like I said, that that study is methodologically flawed. Uh, we, you know, we often rely on anecdote and I'll, I'll provide another one. Um, when uh, Indira Samarasekara was president of the University of Alberta, the Edmonton Journal ran a, a series of articles about her. I mean, she was the first uh, woman of color president at the University of Alberta. And on the front page of the Edmonton Journal, she, uh, she spent a lot of time talking about the boy crisis in higher education, the underrepresentation of white male students in particular. And she, she declared herself to be an advocate for white male students. Um, my department was, uh, understandably concerned about, about that message because, you know, when you look at economic data in Alberta, particularly at that time, um men could walk out of high school into very high paid jobs in in the oil uh, sector whereas women require post-secondary education to be economically successful and that explained uh, the lower participation rate for, for men in the province in my in my view so we wrote a response uh, to her that was published in the Edmonton Journal where we talked about this economic data. We were called into her office and she yelled at us doing that. So uh, again, you know, in my experience, <laughs> progressive views and, in particular, feminist views are uh, are often targeted in in academia, subject to bias, um, particularly in this right wing context in which we live. In the context of corporate universities, you know, uh, I I really have to say that left wing views are are not mainstream on university campuses in my experience.
0: do you, Are you saying that right wing or conservative views are prevalent or are you saying that it's balanced or are you saying, I mean, uh, you know, I mean, geez, like we're talking, how many students at the U of A, like 35,000? I mean, I, I don't think, we're, you know, to say it's a conservative campus or it's a liberal, I think is, is, a, is folly, but uh, you know, what, how would you characterize it if you could?
3: Well, I mean, I, I think it would depend what I was talking about what place in the university I was talking about. I mean, I've done um, academic administration and have to say that that tends to be a fairly conservative space where uh, progressive and feminist views are are certainly in the the minority. So, um, but... You know, ultimately, we do need a diversity of views on university campuses. I'm, I'm a big uh, a proponent of academic freedom and, and viewpoint diversity. And, you know, I've taken very unpopular positions in my career, so I value that. And I think that uh, when we limit academic freedom, it's actually marginalized voices um, that are first uh, shut down.
0: Uh Dr. Goodell, one thing that I wanted to uh, touch on and, and certainly you and I will have future conversations and I'd love to have you back on the show and, and I think like we're we're uncovering so well it's not uncovered. I mean it's you know it's obviously something that you and your colleagues have been very aware of for, for many years, but you know, we're essentially paving the way for an entirely different conversation or a related or subsequent or parallel conversation about violence against women let's call it what it is I mean let's not say bias let's say violence against women let's say you know I mean bias faced by members of different communities um, faith groups genders whatever the case may be Um, in our private correspondence yesterday you told me that you were subject to to vitriol and to attacks and uh, in extreme circumstances it sounds like maybe even threats after I mentioned your name on the show yesterday and I wanted to let you know that in a candid, heated moment, I, I found it and I still find it relevant um, when a very prominent, probably the most prominent professor of women's studies in the province um, calls out my show publicly for its gender makeup or its commitment to gender equity. That was the context, that was the relevance, but I want to be very clear that it is absolutely unacceptable for you to face any abuse any threats uh anything along those lines i completely condemn it it's regrettable and i'm sorry that that was your experience yesterday
3: yeah well you know honestly ryan i can't say i mean i read some of the the tweets in in response to um your ordinary rant and i i i and some of those were, were pretty hostile, but nobody has, maybe after saying this, I'm inviting it, but nobody's direct messaged me. So it's not like I've been targeted for harassment as a result of what you said. But I have to say that, you know, other people um, were condemning you yesterday for even having that discussion. My comment did not engage with that. I I, I, I didn't condemn you for having that discussion. Uh, and, and yet... Um, I was the only person who you mentioned by name in in uh, a monologue um, to which I had no ability to respond. Not only did you mention my name, but you mentioned my workplace. I mean, that's, but that's a the context, as,
0: doctor, right? I'm not I'm not yeah. inviting an attack. And that's why I am that's why I'm, I'm adamantly insisting that people hear me say that it is totally unacceptable for you to face any form of threat. Uh, you know, I'm not going to say any form of blowback because Lord knows you and I both get our yeah. fair share of blowback all the time. But the reason for me to say who you are and the context is the only reason to invoke your name, right? That, that's the only reason. I was I was getting piled on yesterday by hundreds of people. Um, many of them are nobodies, anonymous trolls. And so, but you are not. And uh, that was, anyway, listen, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to argue yeah. with you at all. I'm and just saying there's a reason for me bringing up your name in the context because it was the whole premise of my rant
3: and when you say i'm the i don't think i am the most prominent gender studies professor in the province but i'm someone who takes the commitment to be a public intellectual pretty seriously i don't think a scholarship that resides in the halls of academia is useful i i think to make it useful you have to be willing to to speak publicly you have to be willing to intervene in debates and and contribute to policy discussions. That's, but by doing that, uh, as as a woman and as a feminist, it's it's often it's often a difficult thing to do. And you know, some of your uh, your listeners accused me of uh, being a snowflake. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, you don't do uh, work on sexual violence in a publicly engaged way. And not have a thick skin about it. You know, I can take criticism. I take criticism all the time. And frequently it's caused me to uh, change my views and I value that. So what I offered you yesterday, you know, admittedly in the, you know, the short form demanded by a tweet was criticism. It wasn't an attack. You had the ability to respond to my tweet. I had no ability to respond. Well, that's why why you're here though.
0: That's why you're here. I mean, you right, are you are yeah. in real time responding to my monologue. That's why you're, and I'm grateful you're here. You didn't have to be. I'm grateful you are.
3: Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I have a thick skin, so. <laughs>
0: well, y- but, you've had my respect for many you know. years. What did you want? Yeah, let me give you an opportunity to wrap here. I don't want to cut you off.
3: It did. It Honestly, it did feel like a bit of a gut, a gut punch yesterday when I listened to it, because it wasn't only that you, you named me in, in, in such an angry way, but it was the, the tone really was, was very angry and uh, it did. I, I had a visceral reaction to it. And like yeah. I said, I'm someone who uh, you've relied on in the past for commentary. I, I you know, I've always, i always been willing to come and talk to you, uh, even when that's involved. You know, going out to a studio in the middle of nowhere and taking time out of my day and I've I've appreciated
0: that and I hope that I've helped amplify your message but I think that the the prominence that you've had on my shows and the number of times you've appeared on my shows is part of the reason why I was pretty pissed off yesterday about your assessment and not just yours I mean I was getting like you know I'm not going to turn it this is not it doesn't have to be about me and I'm not trying to make it about me but it's been a hell of a week uh for and I'm getting to the point where I'm just like listen we're going to do this show on issues that matter the 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 noisy I'm not describing you but just the noisy cries around me this week on everything have, be, have been too much. And I pushed back yesterday. And yesterday was the straw that broke the camel's back. And I said what I had to say. And I meant what I said, quite frankly. I, I have respected you for years. I, I adore you, in fact. And I'm really grateful that you're here. And I would be, I would be honored if you would continue to, to appear on the show. And I'd love to make that happen soon. We'll put a panel together. I would ask you to co-produce it with me. I think that would be great.
3: All right. That okay. Good. My yeah. friend,
0: have a great weekend, and thanks for this.
3: You Thank you,
0: Ryan. You got it. That's Dr. Lise Gautel. She's a professor of women's and gender studies at the University of Alberta. She writes about sexual assault law and women's equality. As a matter of fact, if you check out – Sam, can you show our, our viewers on YouTube? Can you show them this at com? CrimeJusticeJournal.com. You're looking for Volume 5, Number 2, published in 2016. You can read Dr. Gotell's piece. Uh, She put it together alongside uh, Emily Dutton out of the University of Alberta on sexual violence in the manosphere, anti-feminist men's right discourses on rape. It's, it's, It's an excellent read, and I encourage you to check it out. These conversations happen because we have remarkable partners that have joined us on this journey, and that includes... The team at Grand Dog Essentials. I tell you, there's nothing, there's no bigger stamp of approval that I can put on Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food than to tell you that our dogs, our Boxer Moses and our Black Lab Monroe both chow down on Grand Dog Essentials quality raw food every single day. They've got us adding blueberries to the dog food. There's there's some science behind it. My wife Carrie quarterbacks that stuff along with the team at Grand Dog. They have nutritionists. It's a family-owned business. You can literally they want to talk to you. They want to call, you know, call on the phone, email what is your dog experiencing and, and and what can make your dog feel better? What small steps can you take in feeding your beloved four-legged family member that could improve their time on Earth? You can check out the team at Grand Dog Essentials at granddog.ca. And a reminder, if you use the promo code RealTalk, they'll take 10% off your first order. Oh yeah, and they deliver right to your door in Calgary, Edmonton, and across Central Alberta. Our thanks to the team at Grand Dog Essentials. Also a big shout out to the team at Kubi Energy. You know what's about to go down here. The team at Kubi Energy is very proud partners with Real Talk presenting positive reflections every Monday where we get our week started off on the right foot. The photos, the videos, the stories, the anecdotes that have filled your tank that you think might do the same for your fellow audience members, send them in to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Make sure you note Kubi Energy or Positive Reflections. Kubi is a Tesla certified solar installer they love to do I mean they do consultations on residential big commercial projects as well plus they handle all the paperwork to try to get your money back whenever you can through government incentives and the like Kubi Energy proud partners of Real Talk it's a perfect entry into something I know a, long, a lot of you have been waiting for uh, for a long time the, the greatly anticipated solar panel and we're going to be talking about uh, all things solar want to invite you to send in your questions and your observations using the hashtag Real Talk RJ this morning let me get to our experts and then we'll get the ball rolling. Uh, on the far right of your screen is Dr. Sarah Hastings-Simon, a macro energy system researcher at the University of Calgary and the Colorado School of Mines. She's also co-host of a podcast you need to subscribe to, the Energy Versus Climate podcast. It breaks down the trade-offs and the hard truths of the energy transition in Alberta, Canada, and beyond. Uh, Dr. Hastings-Simon, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Really grateful to have you joining the mix. Jake Kubiski, who, if you're watching us right now, is is right next to me on the screen. He's the founder and CEO of Kubi Renewable Energy. As you just heard, it's an Alberta based startup focusing on. So- okay, here's the deal, Jake. I don't even. You say you're focused on solar PV. Dude, I don't even know what PV is. So I'm glad that we have this panel coming up here. Battery storage, electric vehicle infrastructure for residential, commercial, institutional applications across Western Canada. Here's where it gets really interesting. Jake, formerly an industrial electric electrician in the Alberta oil sands. Welcome to the show, my man. Thank you, sir. You have bet it, to be here. it's good to have you. And rounding out our panel is the executive director of Solar Alberta. Heather McKenzie steers the ship at the not-for-profit society dedicated to public education. What a great morning we're about to have uh, education about and promotion of renewable energy and energy efficiency. She's got a master's in international development studies, and she's passionate about advancing climate justice, both at home and abroad. Thanks for being here, Heather. It's nice to see you again. Nice
4: to see you too. Thanks for having us.
0: You bet. I want to encourage the three of you to jump in on each other and, and, and build on what each other's saying. You don't have to wait for me to ask you a question. Let's just pretend like we're all having coffee together. Jake, I'm going to start very simple. Solar PV. What's PV? Let's go solar 101 right now.
5: For sure. There's really two types of solar out there. There's the solar thermal and uh, solar PV. So we're focusing more on the solar PV aspect, which is uh, photovoltaics, which is electricity generation
0: in the short of it all. Okay. So uh, Heather, climate justice, is, is this, I mean, is this why you're doing this? Is, is it a sense of, uh, you look around, does it have to do with fossil fuels? Does it have to do with where you grew up? What got you into solar?
4: Well, I came to solar a few different ways. I'm, I guess first and foremost, a humanitarian. So I I have a background uh, in international development as you mentioned, and I've worked a lot uh, supporting uh, AIDS orphans abroad and fundraising and doing a lot of work uh, to raise awareness about international issues. And as I as I watch the climate crisis unfold, of course, we see that disproportionately lower-income uh, people are being affected. Lower-income countries are being affected more. We've got climate refugees. We've got climate refugees right here in Alberta. And it's those folks who... Can afford it the least, who are being hit the hardest. So I think that's probably what most attracted me to the renewable sector, and wanting to really make sure we're getting uh, getting some concrete work done on the ground to make sure we uh, reduce. Uh, I, I realize we can't eliminate the 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 horrors that are unfolding around us. You know, we saw Hurricane Katrina hit some pretty uh, some folks pretty hard who could afford it the least in the U.S. Uh, And so we can't avoid it completely. But what can we do uh, to reduce the impacts of climate change? And solar is a perfect example of what we can do. Uh,
0: Dr. Hastings, Simon, this sounds to me like a, a perfect opportunity to discuss the premise of your podcast, right? I mean, when we're talking about transition. This is what you take on.
6: Yeah, exactly. So on energy versus climate, with my co-hosts uh, Ed Whittingham and David Keith, we're really interested in looking at how our energy systems will evolve in response to climate, um, and particularly in Alberta. You know, I think we we started because we got the sense that sometimes people like to tell these very neat stories uh, and very sort of uh, you know simple narratives around how things work or don't work. Um, and so what we do, our show, we talk a lot about you know it depends, and and here's how. On the one hand. And on the other hand, um, th- things may unfold. Uh, and so it's been it's been really fun. We're kind of coming into our second season um, and getting some good feedback that people are interested in, in what we're talking about.
0: Yeah. Um, Jake, I would imagine I mean, I know a big part of what you do and and, and what you ask us to remind people as part of your sponsorship on, on Real Talk is, is you love the tough questions. You've heard it all, I'm sure, with the, with some people cynical about solar or unsure if it's a good fit for them. I would imagine we need to have different conversations. Like we're going to be talking about battery storage, industrial, residential. These are all very different conversations. But but what are some of the big pushbacks or, or some of the more prominent uh, cynicisms that you perceive there to be around transitioning to solar?
5: Probably the biggest one we get is solar doesn't work in Alberta. Um, people really focus on the Alberta winters. Um tough, you know, it's it's not a great time for solar in the wintertime, but we have a great solar resource in the summertime. Um, Solar in Alberta is doable. It's very doable. Um, Thanks to our net metering program we have here where uh, you can sell your excess energy to the utility company and uh, get a credit for it. So in the wintertime or nighttime when you're not producing a a solid solar resource, then uh, you're going to be buying energy like you would do without solar on your roof. So uh, come summertime when the solar is plentiful and uh, and we have long daylight here in the in the summertime, then uh, you're going to be generating excess energy where you can sell that excess to the grid and generate a credit for yourself.
4: We had an yeah, intake. Oh. No, go
5: Sorry. ahead, Heather.
3: Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead.
4: <laughs> I was- We've been getting a lot of feedback because we were just hosting our big solar show conference. Of course, there's all sorts of haters online saying, oh, it winter, winter. And Jake, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also a big confusion around solar thermal versus solar PV. Uh, there are a lot of people who misunderstand solar PV and they think it doesn't work in the cold. But solar PV has been working in outer space, if I'm not mistaken. It works in very cold weather, and I don't think it's necessarily the temperature that affects the ability to generate solar electricity. Am I right, Jake?
5: That's 100% correct. Uh, Solar, if you were to compare a sunny day, same solar resource to a winter day, it's going to produce better in colder weather. Um, Solar electricity PV generation does produce better in colder weather, 100%.
0: Now it's we need to talk price. I mean we're we're and 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 I'll be honest, I, I think that this panel's great because I know that you're gonna be able to stay with me as we swerve all over the place, bringing in audience questions. It'll we'll go from big issues to nuanced issues to what have you. But this one from Gilles, who's watching live, he says, please ask the panel, you know, how small a cost effective like a positive ROI. Return on investment. Residential solar installation can can be today. A lot of people are asking about cost. Uh, Jake, I know you're going to tell us it depends on the size of the installation. It's going to depend on a lot of things. But you know, for the average house, are we talking like twenty five grand kind of thing?
5: Not even. No, we're uh, we're sitting anywhere between ten and ten and eighteen to twenty thousand in that range for the Edmonton region. Um, Edmonton's got a nice program going right now that's been active for about two years. Uh, it's based off a dollar per watt rebate scheme, so forty cents a watt or up to four thousand dollars, which typically works out to uh, anywhere between fifteen and twenty percent off your installation cost. So total turnkey price for an Edmonton resident, um, anywhere between ten and 18, thousand. that's really dependent on size of the house, energy consumption, roof line, um, you know type of roof, um, a whole bunch of factors, but uh, that's kind of the process that we handle here in house with uh, with our customers is they they reach out to us and then we can uh, we assess all that for them.
4: Uh, and of ha- course. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, we also like to say at Solar Alberta, it's the only home renovation that pays for itself. Right. So you're not just talking cost. I mean, we just recently put up solar panels on our new home in Blatchford and. Uh, The cost for the panels was equivalent or approximately the same as the cost for our home appliances, right? So we got an appliance credit tacked on and we got a solar credit tacked on to our mortgage financing. Almost identical. One of them's going to pay itself back and the other one is just going to depreciate in value and cause us enormous frustration until we eventually have to replace those (laughs) bloody washing machines, right? So,
0: (laughs) Heather, are you... uh, For people outside Edmonton, this may not mean anything, so let me paint a quick picture. Blatchford, um, you know years ago, Edmonton City Council voted to close the municipal airport, and they, and they painted a picture. They, they sold Edmontonians. I, I know that makes it sound cynical, but they, they painted a picture of a community that would have like unbelievable recycling programs. The garbage would be used to heat the homes by deco. I don't understand how all the technology works, but it was like, it reminded me of that Simpsons episode where the guy's like, monorail, monorail. It was like, Blatchford, Blatchford. But then then nothing happened, and the airport sat, sat closed for years, and, and everybody wondered, you know, what the hell? I mean, it was mostly millionaires pissed off that they couldn't land their Cessnas in the middle of the city anymore that was the people that were most ticked off but I've never actually talked to somebody that lives in Blatchford you must be like one of the very first houses there are you
4: yeah we were one of the first six I think there are 12 of us now and so you know we grow every week there's a new (laughs) new spot opening but we're I mean, we're going from like thirty residents now, and they're going to be—I uh, think it was thirty thousand in thirty years or something. So it's okay. going to be a big, a big hub.
0: So I don't know. I mean, I could probably ask all three of you this. So whoever wants to answer it, jump up. But You say, you know, Heather, you said it's—you know—it's the only uh, home improvement that you can make that's going to pay for itself, um, and a lot of people wonder about that. I remember having a, a conversation with a solar expert years ago, who's who, who who acknowledged in the interview said that if you're purely doing it for dollars and cents it doesn't make sense. And I felt like it was a, a bomb had dropped when he acknowledged that. Said there has to be something else driving you to invest in solar. Is that the case or has that changed? I mean, if it's 18 grand to put solar on my roof, how long until that's paid off with energy savings? Sarah, do you want to speak
4: to the pricing? Because I think probably yeah, Ryan talked sure. probably Ryan talked to someone like before 10 years, you know, a while ago. Yeah, and be. Heather, honest,
0: Heather, honestly, this would have been honestly probably like seven years ago.
6: Things have
4: changed a lot. Totally.
0: I mean, I don't think there were podcasts seven years ago, so for sure.
6: (laughs) <laughs> that, and that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about solar and makes it hard to kind of keep up with where things are, is, uh, is how fast costs have come down. So, you know, depending on when you look, if you, if you look back to uh, the 80s, so sort of, you know, when I was born or, or a little uh, a little after, um, the cost of solar has dropped about 99% since that time. So, so just, you know, huge cost reductions. But what that means is that even over the time span of, you know, the last 10 years, five years, um, costs continue to fall. And, you know, if you're working with data that's seven years old or 10 years old, you can have cost estimates that are, you know, more than double or 10 times higher than what they are today. Uh, and so I've definitely heard from a lot of people like, like Jake said, you know, they say, oh, well, solar doesn't make sense in Alberta. It's not cost effective. Uh, and that was definitely true at, at some point. Um, but the, the pace of development of the technology uh, is just so fast and it's so, um, you know, different from a lot of the other energy technologies in that because you're accessing this renewable resource as the technology improves, you know, that improvement goes straight to the bottom line in reducing the costs. And so it's almost like solar and, uh, and other forms of electricity generation, um, from non-renewable fuels are, are sort of in this kind of like unfair fight because solar gets to, you know, keep all the benefits of its cost reduction. Whereas the non-renewable resources that you're combusting, that you're burning in your power plants, um, those, those get harder and harder to find. And so you have to, come up with new technologies to extract those uh, and that ends up eating a lot of that cost savings and so that's sort of the why that you know solar and and wind as well have been able to achieve such impressive cost reductions over that period of time in a way that we're sort of not used to with other technologies
0: right barry's watching in this morning he's a rancher and a soil farmer he says uh, in alberta does selling power back to the grid and actually, let me jump in and say, if, if we're able to analyze things, like we have an audience that listens across the country, but many of our audience members are in Alberta. But if you have insights into other provinces, would love to hear those too. Barry says, does selling power back to the grid cost more than you get back due to distribution charges? Is there some is there some smoke and mirrors there or no?
5: So I'll, I'll hop in on this one. Um, you know, a good, good example, this is Park Power. They have a program, a solar club program that uh, allows Alberta – energy producers to sell their excess solar energy at a 23 cent kilowatt hour rate which is you know three times higher than your standard rate um it's great if you're in the net zero energy producer range um and then if you're not then yes you're going to be selling your excess energy for the same price you pay per kilowatt hour um how you get billed on your dnt fees is a is a long story um but in, in the short of it, it's a, it's based off a, a variable and fixed portion on your DNT fees. So if you can lower your amount of kilowatt hours consumed via solar, you're going to indirectly lower the variable portion of your distribution and transmission fees. So actual number savings, very tough to calculate just based off what plan you're on and where you're at. But uh, in the short of it is, yes, you can have a $0 electricity bill if you have enough solar and your energy consumptions within range of
0: it. I uh, I've heard people, and I this is anecdotal, and I don't have a physical, you know, a question in front of me from a viewer, but just the the, the premise. I've seen some critics of solar talking. Well, I mean, hey, I'll just reference Michael Moore's film uh, that, that came out last year, wasn't it? I think they were talking about mining. I can tell Jake already wants to get at this one. Doctor Hastings, <laughs> Simon, her face is kind of twisting a little bit. Let's talk about this, uh, and and I want to give it over to you. They they say, listen, it's not worth it. The materials that are mined, or maybe not worth it, but it, but but let's not fool ourselves they will argue uh this is equally as destructive to the environment as as fracking or, or coal mining or whatever the case may be whatever else we do for power for heat because of the lithium mining because of the disruption to the environment because of the coal you got to you know you've got to burn the metallurgical coal to get the steel you know what i'm talking about the battery disposal uh, environmentally it's just not worth it uh, sarah what do you say to those folks
6: I mean, that's just patently false, right? So, you know, it, it, it's sort of this concern about what's the environmental impact and and there has been studies upon studies done of a life cycle analysis. So really looking at what is the total amount of energy uh, and, and pollution that's created to make a unit of electricity from a solar panel versus a unit of electricity from, you know, natural gas or coal. And there's no question that using natural gas or coal is much more polluting. Um, and, and so, you know, if that's what you're, if that's what you're after, um then there's you know there's a clear advantage in going with solar. What is true is that you know everything that we do has an impact and every energy source has an impact. So yes, uh, jet- making solar panels does have an impact, uh, but that impact is much much less than the alternative. And so you know certainly we should be doing more on the efficiency side to reduce the amount of energy that we need. Um, but as I sometimes say if people are you know worried about what happens with a solar panel after its 25 years lifetime, they're going to be shocked what finds out uh, when they find out what happens to that unit of coal or natural gas after it's burned uh you know in a second in the in the turbine to generate electricity because that's uh you know there's a lot more of that going on well, and, and you're speaking
4: about it in comparison to other energy sources, but also if you look at it as an appliance, you know, what other electrical appliance, you know, lasts to 25 to 40 years. It's actually phenomenal, right? When you When you think of the planned obsolescence for our computers, for our cell phones, the fact that you have to replace them every five years. And then you look at a solar panel, it's just amazing that they can last 25 to 40 years. I mean, the 25 is just the warranty often, and and they can go beyond. And there are actually initiatives across the country, and we had a panel at our, our, our recent solar show, we had a recycling solar PV panel, uh, which we feature two companies that are actively recycling and reusing solar, uh, both the panels as well as they're looking at the uh, lithium ba- uh, battery storage uh, recycling. Uh, and so we have amazing innovation happening on how we can keep um, solar in the system and not have to perpetually Uh, mine and source new materials we can actually mine and and source from what's already existing in many cases so it's phenomenal to see the innovation happening also right here in Alberta we have a pilot program through ARMA Alberta's uh, recycling management authority they are piloting the recycling of solar panels here in Alberta and so there's some phenomenal innovation happening there when you look at good corporate sort of social responsibility and environmental responsibility practices. I actually think solar is probably at the top of the list on uh, when, as compared to other energy sources and also as compared to other electronics.
0: (laughs) Okay. Keep the questions coming. Real talkers. We've got a whole bunch of them right now. We want to get to as many as we can very much enjoying uh, this solar panel early on with our guests. Wanted to break for a moment to remind you that if you're experiencing issues with plumbing This isn't a medical statement. I'm talking about your house. If you've got problems with your plumbing and you need to make sure your family stays warm and dry, you're going to want to call Todd's Mechanical. They're the plumbers that keep Edmonton warm and dry. They take care of all your plumbing and heating needs. Todd actually has something in common with Jake of Kubi Energy. They both used to work up in the oil sands, but but Todd wanted more time with his family. He wanted to be home every night, so he's now running this company and earning rave reviews. Check him out online. You'll see what I mean. Furnace Repairs, he does it too. For the best plumber in Edmonton, and write it down. You might not need him today, but when you need him, you need him now. You can call Todd's Mechanical at 780-499-7598. The Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park want to remind you that for five bucks weeknights after 8 o'clock for five bucks you can mix and match two dipped cones or sundays. the date night doesn't get any cheaper than that hit the drive through when you're picking it up let them know that you're a real talker they love to hear from you or you can use your favorite delivery app for the six dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park our solar panel today is Heather McKenzie of Solar Alberta, Jake Kubiski of Kubi Energy, and Dr. Sarah Hastings-Simon, uh, I'm going to say, of the Energy Versus Climate podcast, but also the Colorado School of Mines and the University of Calgary. I've uh, got a great question here. It's not a question. It, it's, a, it's a picture that Scott is painting. Um, and I'd love for all of you to chime in on it. Jake, I'm going to throw it to you first. Scott, but he says, I would love a solar array, some form of battery storage, an electric car. He says, almost total self-sufficiency. That is my dream, says Scott. Now I, I, you can't speak to the electric car. I don't know what his vehicle budget is, but how far away is Scott from living that dream is the tech almost all there or is it here?
5: It's here. It's here right now. So he can definitely do all of that. Um, I know a few EV manufacturers are working on currently uh bi-directional flow on the EV batteries. So one day you'll be able to charge at your place of business or public station and uh, come home and plug your car in and your, your system at your house will be able to pull energy off your car's battery to, to run your house. Um, for example, like a, a Tesla Powerwall is a 14 kilowatt hour storage battery, while the car's battery of equivalent Tesla would be 85 kilowatt hours. So, they you know, they, the amount of battery storage capacity that is in the vehicles is, is much larger than uh, what you can put in your house on, on a scale level. Um, so, as soon as we can figure out a way to suck energy out of the car, rather than just push it in it, then, then that dream is gonna become a reality for a lot of people.
0: Heather, Sarah, is it, would you agree with the assessment? I mean, is this the type of thing? If somebody says, "I'm really making a commitment here for total self sufficiency," uh, you know, in, in the far northern region of North America, where you know, you know, all all of the protests, all of the criticisms that solar faces, can they do it? Can they live it now?
6: So I would put a, a nuanced take on it, which is, you know, yes, you can, you can do all those things and you're going to um, dramatically reduce the amount of, of outside electricity you're consuming. It's still going to be much easier to do it connected to the grid and, you know, using that solar as part of a, a set of grid resources. And that generally applies, you know, this sort of view that we're going to power our entire system with one energy type. Um, that, that's usually the hardest way to do things. Um, but this desire for energy independence and to be able to, you know, generate your own energy Um, I think is a really interesting way to think about solar and it's something where, you know, in the US, for example, solar tends to come, it's a little bit less political than I feel like it is in Alberta. Um, So, you know, studies have shown that for people that have solar installed on their house, it it splits pretty evenly between those who are uh, Democrats and Republicans, like a few more Democrats, but but not as much as you might think. Um, And there have been interesting alliances in the past. My my favorite one was the the so-called Green Tea Party Alliance, Uh, in the southern part of the u.s where you had you know the green party that wanted to see more solar uh, installed and the tea party that was all about independence and you know government staying out of your business Um, and so solar and being able to generate solar on your own roof or on your own farm or wherever it is um, really fit in well with that so uh, you know i I do think that there is there's more to solar than just kind of the environmental uh, side of things
0: I want to. I want to talk, Heather. I want to ask you about uh, the transition in training and uh, preparing oil and gas workers, the traditional, if we call them traditional energy workers, into solar. But I think to lay the groundwork for this, Jake, I want to ask you because you've lived it, you've done it, you are that person, um, a, a, an industrial electrician in oil and gas in the oil sands, now uh, you know steering a solar installation company, a renewable energy company. First of all, what do your former colleagues have to say about it?
5: <laughs> They're pretty stoked, and a lot of them work for me right now. Yeah, so right on. A lot, of them have, a lot of them have made that transition as well, and uh, most of our guys we've just we just hired ten new electricians, and uh, half of them are from the oil and gas sector, and then the other half are starters and, and first years that came out of the alternative energy program from me. So these are all just new jobs that were created out of uh, out of really th- that weren't around ten years ago. Um, so as, as the tr- transition does happen and as it's going on, it's it's companies like Kubi Energy and other, other renewable companies that are going to fill the void between uh, where these electricians and other trades are going to end up going.
0: What was your moment? What what was your aha moment? Did you get laid off or did you quit or what was it?
5: No, I actually quit my job. Uh, my aha moment was, uh, uh, my now wife and I went to uh, Costa Rica and we were we were down there and they were on a 200 days of renewables or, or something like that in 2015 and I came back and I was pretty inspired by that so I, I looked around to see what was going on in Alberta in regards to this transition taking place and nothing was nothing was happening really at any any meaningful scale so I just figured it was a good time and uh, and I quit my job at Shell I was at currently in Port Saskatchewan and and uh, yeah, and, and here we are today.
0: There you yeah. go. Uh, Heather, yeah. we, Thankful. Heather, we saw this morning that, that unemployment, um, this from StatsCan, these numbers out just today, unemployment uh, is down in, in, in Canada, or rather in Alberta, unemployment down to 9.9%, which still isn't great. Uh, 10%, I know Sarah's face. I mean, I had the same reaction. I'm like, are we supposed to celebrate that 10% of the workforce is unemployed right now? Now it's the lowest it's been in a year. Um, but it's still the second highest in Canada. And I would wager a guess that many of those people have worked in oil and gas, uh, and have a lot of experience there. So what does that transition look like Heather? And what resources are there?
4: Well, there, of course, some of that is oil and gas, but we know Alberta's women's employment is at levels we haven't seen since 1984. So that tells me actually it's mostly women who are being hit uh, by these uh, transitions in the economy due to COVID. So I do think there, is, uh, there are a lot of people transitioning from oil and gas, but I also think there are a huge number of unemployed women in Alberta right now. And there need to be training programs that are accessible and ready for a wide variety of folks to transition in. I mean, I talk to mid-career professionals on a regular basis who who are looking to transition uh, from the oil sector. They're not necessarily out there doing the installs. They're actually uh, management. And so, you know, there are positions for everyone in the solar industry. I think right now what people are looking for is a reliable, stable job. They want to get off that roller coaster. We've had election after election where politicians promise they're going to get us off that roller coaster. We're still not off it. So most Albertans are saying, well, forget about that. I'm going to get myself off the roller coaster. And whether, you know, whether that's someone working in oil and gas or whether that's someone married to someone who is working in oil and gas and is tired of the roller coaster, everybody's looking for a transition. So there's lots of good options right now. Unfortunately, the cuts we're seeing to post-secondary are probably going to hurt some of those options. Uh, but we do have programs at Nate, Sait, Lakeland. Solar Alberta offers a number of courses, and fortunately, those are not being affected by the government cuts we're seeing. So, if you want to have a, a nice quick intro, you can come to Solar Alberta for some coursework. I know Iron and Earth they offer programs specifically for those folks transitioning from oil and gas. Those are quick uh, training programs. I think five to ten days, or something I've heard. So. If people need a quick transition there are a few programs for that if they're looking for a more substantive transition and they want to move into a leadership role uh, they'll probably need to get a diploma or a degree to make that shift but U of C U of A also have programs that would be interesting to a lot of folks uh, and hopefully we'll be able to um, remain vital despite these cuts I, I think the demand is there I just hope that we can make it through with the budget cuts we're seeing because obviously we need to be able to respond to the demand for the transition in our workforce
0: yeah, we're spending in all the dumb areas and cutting in all the smart areas. I can see uh, right now that the technical producer of this show, his eyes are just... he I can tell Sam Brooks has a question. I hope you don't mind me putting you on I, camera. I, I have a lot of
1: questions. Okay. Just, well, I'm nerdy about this stuff. I, Yeah, anyways. Hey, guys, how's it going? I, I guess my question is a little bit more sort of the, the idea, if I can kind of put my engineering hat on and be a little bit of a futurist here and, and say, you know, I've always thought... That the way that we made our power grid was very inherently wrong. We have one giant power factory over here and a million businesses and homes and that kind of stuff that need the power from it. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's one source and a gajillion consumers. And I'm thinking about a world where every single building has a solar panel on it and we end up in this scenario where you know when you're when you're at work during the day the solar panels on your house are juicing the business across the street and vice versa and and charging stuff up so i just want to you know see if you guys have some commentary of like how soon are we going to get to a future where we we're not building power plants we're just having this distributed grid where everybody is essentially a producer and a consumer
6: a great Sarah, question. You... Um, yeah. <laughs> so a couple of thoughts on that. One is if you want to read more about the history of the development of the grid, there's a great book called The Grid uh, by Gretchen Bach, I believe. Um, so that's a, that's a fun read if you're into that kind of thing. Um, and, and you're right that, you know, the grid developed really based on the kind of technologies we had at the time. So if you're going to have a power plant that's burning fuel, you're going to want to put it pretty far from where people are living because you don't want to be, you know, living by that, that spoke stack. Um, and exactly, uh, you know, there's this transition now is one that's exactly like what you're describing. So, you know, sometimes when we think about, you know, how does solar or other technologies fit into our grid, there's this temptation to kind of think, well, we're unplugging this one thing here and putting solar in there. And is that really going to work out? But in fact, when we think about building a, you know, very low carbon or eventually zero carbon grid, it's really changing the way that the grid operates overall. And it does become more distributed uh, for some of the generation, but at the same time, it can actually become more interconnected. So you're connecting regions that are far apart from each other because you might be generating power from solar or wind in one of those places at a time you're not somewhere else. You're also going to be interacting with the use of the electricity much more. So rather than just having kind of the demand come as this fixed, um, you know, uh, thing you can't impact, um, grid operators are increasingly able to uh, shift demand around. Of course, energy storage uh, across all different time frames. So, you know, storage hourly storage, day-long storage, and others, um, it, it's all going to look very, very different. And as that for the timeline, uh, you know, in order to meet the targets that we have in Canada, um, you know, there's not a lot of time left to get moving on these things. So, uh, you know, the U.S., for example, is planning to get to um, zero carbon by 2035. I think we could do something similar here uh, in Alberta if we put our minds to it.
4: Yeah, and I think on that note, I think the, I mean, we've, you asked about the timeline and, and look at the coal phase out, right? Like we set some goals and we're going to uh, surpass those goals just by getting our carbon pricing right, okay? So you just remove some of those subsidies for those sectors that are polluting. And, uh, and make sure that they're integrated properly into our, our new carbon economy and, and you can transition pretty quickly. So I think we've seen the coal phase out uh, going at very speedy rates and we need to be prepared for the same on the natural gas front. I think uh, natural gas is gonna phase out much quicker than people anticipate. A lot of folks think oh yeah we'll just do natural gas you know for quite a while but i i don't think so now that the price of wind and the price of solar is so low and and that's without subsidy it's the cheapest form of new energy on the grid uh without subsidy i think we're going to see the natural gas phase out happening real quick and we're going to get to this this world sam's envisioning a lot faster than expected uh, assuming that governments don't just suddenly decide to massively subsidize natural gas in the new economy.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's in the price of natural gas. I think that oftentimes we do ourselves a real disservice, and that probably falls on my shoulders, other tacos, shoulders, newspaper columnists uh, to not just, you know, people talk. If you're going to talk about the economies and again, I'll focus on Alberta, you know, what Ralph Klein did and what his budgets look like with regards to now or some of the the economic woes or resource revenue uh, conversations. People, I'm not sure, are super aware of how the price of natural gas uh, we're accustomed to it being quite low and quite affordable but if it all of a sudden is not we may have very different conversations I mean like I, I don't have it in front of me but I saw a comment from Lauren who's watching in that said you know As the carbon tax continues to climb as well, I bet you more and more people are going to be more open to the idea of renewables or investing in green energy. Let me ask you this from Greg. He says, if solar tech is improving so rapidly, (laughs) Greg, I feel the same way about phones, to be honest, but he says, would it not be smarter to wait for the improvements to slow down before investing? What would you say to Greg?
6: I'd say we're kind of at that point, right? So that would have been a good argument, uh, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago where Alberta did benefit from some other countries stepping up and doing a lot more of the installation. But now we're at the point where it makes sense. You know, there's been some analysis done that shows that for the next incremental power that you bring on to Alberta's grid, it is cheaper today to use a combination of solar, wind, storage, and demand response than it is to build a new gas plant. Um, And that gets at another point too. There's this temptation to talk a lot about you know, getting to the very, very last, uh, you know, ten percent of decarbonization of the grid, um, which gets harder because you do have to manage the storage and the and the um, variability more. Um, but that glosses over that we have a long runway to go. We're at about, I think, fourteen uh, percent renewables as of last year on Alberta's grid, and so we have a long, long runway to go before we need to, you know, confront some of those more challenging problems. Um, and and solar can really be bringing a lot of benefits, uh, you know. To, to the grid without having to pair it with storage today. So let's you know let's, let's let people work on sorting out how we're going to do that part in in the end. But let's not you know forget to be building all the other stuff leading up to it.
0: Right. Um, I should also note that Greg uh, had written me an email a while ago, and I always try to give credit to audience members when they when they play a part in the editorial process. Uh, Greg reached out. He's excited about this solar panel. Uh, this was back I, I don't know when did he email me February twenty second. So a while ago. He says I highly recommend having Dr. Michael E. Mann out of Penn State University on your show. He says he's a pioneer in the scientific community, a significant con- contributor to our understanding of the planet's historical climate record and modeling the future temperature rise one of the lead authors for that IPCC climate change report that received the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize. He's got a new book, The New Climate War, The Fight to Take Back Our Planet. Um, I'm excited to let Greg and everybody else know that a week from yesterday, so Thursday, March 16th at 9 a.m., uh, Dr. Michael E. Mann will be joining us from Penn State University here live on Real Talk. So that's going to be great. Um, Jake, I shouldn't say this to a, to a sponsor of the show, but this is hilarious. Jess is watching live on YouTube and says, a Confession, I thought Kubi." Energy was an energy drink, so I never paid attention to the ads. <laughs> Jess says, suffice to say, I've learned a lot today, which is awesome. amazing. Have, have you ever thought about branding some sort of high-octane energy drink? It's perfect. <laughs>
5: Hasn't crossed our mind yet, but uh, <laughs> we may look into
0: it. <laughs> um, Rose says, "You know, there was a home in solar Kel-
4: infused. Yeah, that's yeah. solar infused. infused what? A, what a
0: great idea! Yeah, <laughs> put some sunshine in your life. Uh, yeah, there was a home in Kelowna, says Rose, that had solar panels, but complaints were issued that they didn't improve the overall aesthetic of the neighborhood. Jake, is this something that has become an issue for some of your customers, or something you need to be aware of?"
5: sometimes in neighborhoods there's architectural design limits for what you can put on your house or uh, or whatever um, we worked through that with some customers in the past uh, for example like around golf courses and stuff they want every house to look the same use cedar shakes or some sort of siding or whatever uh, we, we, we've, we've had success in the past explaining uh, you know that we can what what it does and how we can make it look as more aesthetically pleasing by using like a black-on-black solar panel or a flashing around the perimeter of the array. Um, this is all traditional solar we're talking about as well. There's lots of interesting products on the horizon in regards to solar shingles and things where you won't even know you have solar on your house, uh, building integrated TV and and, uh, and things around uh, like just similar to the Shaw Conference Center or Edmonton Event Center. Um, you don't know there's solar on that building unless you know there's solar on that building, which um, I think that is the future of, of solar in in, Pretty, it's coming out. It's quick here. Um, traditional so- solar is definitely the most cost-effective right now. Um, but if you're the type of person that's worried about aesthetics, there is products coming out that uh, can can satisfy your your concern there.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean there's yeah the neat ones. I mean you and I have spoken many times about these Jake about like the you know the window glass things and all that. And Sam, you, you were talking. And actually, Jake, maybe this is an opportunity for us to talk about your work on the Edmonton Convention Center. But bring bringing the audience up to speed on the vision that you had a while back. This was off air. We were just chewing the fat. Uh, what, what vision was I talking about? You remember know, we were back? talking about how you were saying why doesn't every office tower in every oh, downtown. Yes, 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 why yes. isn't it covered?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's like why isn't every office tower covered? Because I mean, I love the the convention center for two reasons. One is I just think I think the solar rays cool. I I love that you you snuck an artwork into that solar array as well like that's just <laughs> that you know you took this thing that, that is just sort of this functional thing you've added to the window and, and now there's actually a poem embedded in it which is is such a cool thing to think about um, no I was also thinking like again sort of this futurist idea you know we know that like solar windows are starting to become a big deal and um, Here's a here's a look at the shot conference. Look at Center the guy right switching yeah.
0: camera shots while he's talking. Look at this guy, <laughs> Samuel G. Brooks. Uh, just give me a wave from
1: across the room, saying, "Hey, show my screen right now." Anyways, um,
0: <laughs> but yeah, same
1: thing is like you know I know right here at the U of A, there's there's uh, engineering teams researching um, window coverings that essentially turn any window into a photovoltaic cell, and I'm just and and you know they also reduce the amount of heat coming through that window as well. So like, um. I think we can largely dismiss some of these technologies as being experimental and maybe not ready for prime time, but, but are we like, is this what's coming up very soon?
5: There's buildings currently in Europe, high skyscrapers similar to the Stantec tower where uh, the whole self-face would be covered in building integrated TV modules. Um, it is a thing. It, it is happening. Um, why we're not adopting it in, in Canada as quick is uh, I'm not too sure on that.
4: Well, and that might start to shift now, right? Because the government of Alberta and the government of Canada just financed a new uh, energy savings for business program through Emissions Reductions Alberta. And people can essentially access... a Companies, businesses, and not-for-profits can now access the rebates. They don't call them rebates because it's the new, <laughs> it's the new Alberta. We call them incentives. Uh, but essentially, you can access solar or energy efficiency uh, rebates now for businesses and not-for-profits uh, through Emissions Reductions Alberta. And I think we're going to see uh, a, an increase uh, uptake from those who have the power over those buildings downtown. I think uh, in the past, you know, you, ha- you had you might have had. Uh, a number of uh, individual Albertans who are participating because of the, the rebates that were in place for individual homeowners and that are still in place in a few municipalities. But now with the new energy savings and business program, we're gonna probably see a shift and it's gonna be increasingly uh, commercial uh, solar that's going up in the next year. And we're actually having a lunch and learn uh, next Thursday about uh, commercial solar coming on the grid in Alberta in, a, in, a, in an ever increasing way.
0: Um, This, I suppose, opens the door for talk about the politics of solar, right? And and we're getting comments here. People are saying everything's going to change under President Joe Biden and all these types of things. And if if you even analyze what... Canadian voters said and what they told pollsters after the 2019 federal election the conservatives won the vote count they didn't win the election I'm not going to drag us too deep into that conversation but a lot of Canadians especially in the GTA especially in Vancouver said we would have considered the conservatives but we did not perceive them to have a meaningful climate plan Um, Sarah you want to go first on this uh, on the politics of solar and what you expect to see and where you see that trending and what you find to be notable
6: yeah, so I mean, I'll go back to the point that in the U.S., solar is really becoming, you know, or is already, I think, apolitical. Um, you have, you know, different people with different political views that see that you know solar just makes sense um and so i i hope that we will move to that uh, more in in alberta um, and canada going forwards i think one thing that is going to be a big important trend um is the, uh corporations procuring renewables including solar to power their own businesses and so this is something that has been really big in the u.s for a number of years it started with the tech companies like apple and google and others um, and has since spread to everybody you know budweiser does it's uh you know gm and others um and alberta is a great place for these kind of deals to happen as well too uh, and it, it makes a lot of sense you know it's a good thing for for alberta because it, what it means is investment that's coming in to develop these resources uh you get payments to the the landowners and the municipalities and others And we're starting to see that really um, you know take a big uptake in that. Uh, So I think that's going to be an important piece of kind of the private sector coming in, you know, after the government has uh, played a big role in both bringing the cost down and then in Alberta through procuring solar and kind of showing um, how cheap solar has gotten that really opens the door for the private sector to come in and, and make those future investments.
4: Yeah. And I think whether you're right, left or center, everybody wants uh, more jobs in Alberta right now. And yeah. a really quick way to generate jobs in Alberta is to invest in solar. And so I, I think it's uh, it, it has has tendency to become political here and there. But at the end of the day, when you look at the time... Between training and jobs and between investment and job creation, I mean, solar is phenomenal and you can really get some quick turnaround there. So when you're, when you're talking about a just recovery, a green recovery, when you're talking about uh, trying to get a, a ton of Albertans back to work, it's a very natural investment regardless of where you sit on the political spectrum
0: i've got uh, some really interesting comments here and i want to get to these um you know emma says when i was at the government of alberta a lot of people were working on deep geothermal community generation solar wind Uh, then the ucp came in and i was laid off during my mat leave says emma judy says people need to google renewable energy you will see how far behind canada is with respect to solar and renewables Uh, jake is that fair is that accurate
5: that's accurate, I would say. Uh, a good example of uh, community geothermal is Blatchford. They got, uh, fr- from my understanding, what's going on there, they have a, a communal geothermal system and uh, they're going to be distributing it to all the, all the homes and businesses built within Blatchford. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's a good example of, uh, of, of a pilot project, we'll call it, for what could be done in, in future communities going forward.
4: Yeah, we're actually not even we don't even have natural gas hookup. It's it's wonderful. When we were when we first walked in to look at our house in Blatchford. Uh, we were talking about appliances and our realtor said, oh, I guess you could get a natural gas stove. And and uh, we looked at each other and we looked at the, you know, the builder and, and we were, we we're all just like, no, like that's actually impossible in Blatchford <laughs> unless you personally want to pay for the hookup for the entire neighborhood and just do that yourself. Uh, yeah, with geothermal and solar that and, and grid tie, I should say, the fact that we're connected to the grid, as Sarah mentioned earlier, is essential, but it is enabling new homes to transition much quicker
0: okay so no natural gas hookup um but but you are hooked up to the grid so you can intake power uh from outside your solar source if need be in other words if you know a piece falls off an airplane heaven forbid and shatters your solar panels you're still going to be able to cook dinner
4: Right, but remember that the number one uh, use of energy in any of our homes is home heating. Mm -hmm. And so if your geothermal is actually doing your home heating, And then you're reducing the pressure on your electrical system. Right. And so, yes, you're right. We're still grid connected. And that's absolutely essential, Um, not just so that we can be connected to traditional forms of energy elsewhere in the province, but so that we can be uh, ideally connected to other forms of renewable energy uh, in this province and elsewhere over time.
0: this is a really interesting one from Jackie, and I'm going to respect the three of your time. We're going to wrap the panel here in just a second. But uh, Jackie says, isn't the other barrier or one of the other barriers that current regulations only allow for micro generation of renewable energy preventing large scale powering into the grid? It kind of builds off the picture that Sam was painting. Uh, Dr. Hastings, Simon, you look like you might have a take on this. Is, is that accurate from Jackie? SO
6: it, IT'S A VERY COMPLEX SYSTEM. OKAY. Um, THERE'S, THERE ARE OTHER, YOU KNOW, IT IS POSSIBLE TO HAVE DISTRIBUTION-CONNECTED uh, RENEWABLE ENERGY, SO YOU CAN BUILD A SORT OF MID-SIZED. YOU CAN ALSO BUILD a LARGE-SCALE SOLAR FARMS, SO UTILITY-SCALE FARMS. Um, the, THE SOLAR ON YOUR ROOFTOP IN ALBERTA KIND OF, I, I THINK IT'S FAIR TO SAY, GETS A LESS GOOD DEAL THAN IT DOES IN MOST OTHER JURISDICTIONS, THE WAY THAT THE, the TRANSMISSION AND DISTRIBUTION FEES ARE, are um, ADDRESSED, SO THAT IS TRUE. Um, One of the other big missing pieces on the the sort of smaller scale side is something called virtual net metering. So that's basically helps to support things like community solar, where, you know, if you don't own your home or your home isn't well suited to um, have solar on the rooftop because of the way it's facing, or you just want to take advantage of, you know, the slightly lower costs when you have a somewhat bigger system, um, community solar is a way for a group of people to kind of get together and you can own a portion of a bigger solar system. System. Um, and that's harder to do under the the rules that we have in Alberta so there's certainly things that we could do um, to, to open that up a bit more um, and that would really open up you know we were talking about some of those cool technologies like solar on windows and I think those are you know great and, and really neat for the future but actually we have a ton of roof space uh, in all across Alberta right we, we all know all those big malls and all these other kind of not not super tall um, commercial buildings with huge flat roofs and so we have no shortage of space to put the solar Um, And and that means that we have a lot of potential to develop more.
0: That's a great point. I mean, I'm I'm like picturing as soon as you said big malls, I'm not sure if people know, but there's actually a huge one in Edmonton and... um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you could probably. Tell you. Pa- you know what? You know what? Somebody told me once. We did this. Uh, this guy Darren Hagen, who's probably not expecting to hear his name dropped here. He's he's a comedian and a performer and a, and a very talented uh, entertainer in the city of Edmonton. And he used to do this TV segment called Walk a Mile, and he would go do somebody's el- somebody else's job for for the day. And and we'd send a camera with him, and it was really interesting. And we sent him one day to change light bulbs with the guy whose full-time job it is to change light bulbs at West Edmonton Mall. And it's, I mean, it's amazing, like the number of stores and hallways and bathrooms. And you can imagine, and they're all different bulbs What about the water park? I mean, imagine changing those light bulbs. Like, you know, um, I I think of, uh, you know, Eddie the Eagle, the ski jumper from Britain in in 1988. Who They asked him, what what was it like when you sat up on the 90 meter ski jump? And he says, my butt shriveled up like a prune. Uh, That would be Darren Hagen changing light bulbs at the water park. Um, But we learned something very interesting that day. And that was that the guy changing light bulbs uh, divulged that West Edmonton Mall every day uses as much power as the city of Red Deer. Uh, Now, I don't know if that's still the case, but that dropped my jaw with perspective. Sarah, imagine if that same square footage could generate enough power to feed the city of red deer. Right. Yeah.
6: And you're not even tall, right. (laughs) It certainly uses a lot of power. Um, I'm sure in cooling in the summer, right. That mall is nice and cool when you go walk around. Um, and solar is really great for that because exactly the time when we need to be cooling our buildings is when solar is producing a lot. So there's a lot of sort of natural, um, match up there. Yeah. And let me say, I I don't know if
0: that's actually an accurate statement, but it's what the guy told us. I should put that on the record.
6: I should
4: say you're not even including parking lots here, people. I mean, look at the rooftop at solar, but I think West Edmonton Mall parking lot or that IKEA parking lot, I keep thinking, when is that going to get done? Because there's some really cool innovation happening around solar uh, where, you know, you can park your cars under it or in rural Alberta, park your cows under it, right? So there's some pretty cool stuff happening where you can use solar to protect uh, car dealerships. You can use it to protect um, the parking lots. Uh, I think it's the Science Center in Calgary, if I'm not mistaken, where they're putting up a really cool community generation solar project. And uh, and so it's neat to see the possibility both uh, on rooftops, but also uh, parking lots and other spaces uh, that are really not fully utilized
0: right now. All right. I, w- I want to make this last question, and Jake, I want to put it to you. Uh, Mark chimes in. He wonders, is there an issue with building code not including more efficiency built in and having to pay for the inefficient first and then pay again to replace it with higher efficiency or green energy. Uh, Now, I guess Heather's experience actually is a little bit different than that, isn't it? And Heather will ask you, but Jake, you first.
5: I think it would help if there was some regulation around uh, incorporating solar into homes and making things more efficient, including windows, doors, insulation etc i know places like california and new york have have programs in place where you either got to do a green roof or solar pv on the roof um, and just by adding that into the built cost of a house um, amortized over your mortgage it's the cost of the solar is uh, is nothing really in comparison to the actual cost of building the home Heather have-
4: I mean, we absolutely need more stringent building codes if we want to achieve our goals of net zero uh, building development. Right now, you know, we have uh, federal building codes that are inadequate, provincial, and they're not going to get us to where we're supposed to be going, right? So you've got different levels of government making some interesting commitments, even municipally, you know, making commitments uh, that are admirable, but we have to make sure the codes are in place to get there. And so if, if there's a mismatch there and if you're expecting you know, developers to just kind of go ahead and do it on their own without any kind of, um, a stick. I don't think it's going to happen. I always say we can't go all carrot and no stick, right. It's not going to work. Uh, you know, you can rely on industry to kind of lead some of this transition, but if elected officials and and their administrators aren't willing to put the codes in place to direct people, it's not going to happen. Just some basic things like, um, you know, the orientation of your rooftops, right? Uh, you know, if you really want something to be solar ready, it's going to have to actually like face the sun, right? Uh, so that's not even in place right now in most jurisdictions. <laughs> and you've got uh, you've got roads that are being built uh, in directions that are not conducive to solar. You've got, I mean, even just a cul-de-sac is less effective than uh, a grid at uh, receiving sunlight for the buildings on that street. So there's a whole bunch of things that city plans need to be doing and actually need to be regulating, including codes. Um, I remember hearing from a member recently, you know, you were talking earlier, Jake, about the aesthetic of solar and he said, well, one of the reasons that sometimes it's hard to have a nice looking solar array is because there are like random peaks everywhere and people put unnecessary peaks on buildings that actually have nothing to do with utility. It's just someone wants their building to look more like a castle. <laughs> so as long as we have this, you know, desire to have random peaks along buildings. Of course your solar is going to look ridiculous because you're, you're having to, like, no, no castle was designed with solar in mind. And so, yes, we need to say, like, stop putting up silly peaks so we can put solar on your roof and have something useful there. I mean, I'm all for peaks if they're serving a purpose, but not if they're just there to disadvantage the generation of local electricity.
0: Yeah. I mean, yeah. And and, and why you got to crap all over people that have always wanted to live in castles, Heather? I mean, so what do you have against (laughs) living in castles? (laughs) Dr. Hastings, Simon, um, I I respect your time. Of course, all three of you. So we'll give last word to you. What's something that that, I mean, what's something we haven't covered that as soon as we sign off, you would have gone. oh, I wish we would have said that. What is it?
6: Uh, I think it's that, you know, even though the sun doesn't always shine, solar can still play a significant and important role in a, in an integrated energy system. And you know, I kind of like one analogy that I like, it's, it's sort of like a, a 10 course meal. And that's what our electricity system is like. You wouldn't want to eat only dessert for, for dinner every single day, maybe unless you're my son. Um, but it, it forms an important part and it, it meets a specific need that you have. And solar is a lot like that, you know, you're, we're not going to power our entire energy system on solar in Alberta and and people that kind of take that as a straw dog to knock down are are sort of arguing against something that's not going to happen, but it can play a a significant role and it can bring us, you know, affordable power to uh, power our air conditioners and as part of an integrated energy system. So we really need to think about that, you know, full meal deal um, when we're thinking about our electricity system.
0: I love it. That's Dr. Sarah Hastings-Simon. She's a researcher at the U of C and the Colorado School of Mines. Make sure you subscribe to her pod podcast the energy versus climate podcast uh, heather mckenzie is the executive director of solar alberta and jake kubisky is the ceo and founder of kubi renewable energy uh the three of you one, this is uh, yeah I, jake, yeah of course you can
5: uh, before we tie off uh, one, one one thing that uh, we find all the time too is the solar is the initial capital cost of doing the installation um uh, we get it that it's not it hasn't been a great 2020 for a lot of businesses so uh we understand that the capital cost is a hindrance for most for people and, and, and businesses. Um, so um, it's good to see a program coming out in the near future with Edmonton here. Um, it's it's a, kind of a copycat program of what's called the PACE program in the United States. Um, it's called the Clean Energy Improvement Program, CEIP for the acronym. Um, essentially what it does is that it, it allows the capital cost of the initial installation to be covered by the city um, and then it is added onto your property tax for X amount of time Um, So the idea of this is you get your solar, the city gets to create a lower carbon uh, uh, city, um, strengthens the local economy by creating jobs for for businesses to hire people to do these things. And uh, it's a two-year pilot program that's getting rolled out here in the early uh, 2021. So pretty, pretty awesome program. It's had great success in the United States in regards to getting solar on roofs and avoiding the capital cost of the program
0: awesome and and by the way we should point out jake that uh you and your team does all the paperwork because someone like me the thought of the paperwork would be enough reason (laughs) to not to not do it that's why it would sit on my back burner for half a year because of the paperwork uh thanks to the three of you oh heather you wanted one last we're we're gonna keep going for another hour i know how this is gonna go (laughs)
4: Well, I was gonna say, if you're listening from outside of Edmonton, there are three other municipalities in the province who are putting in place CEEP programs, clean energy improvement programs. And within the government of Alberta's regulation, every municipality in Alberta could currently put in place their SEEP programming and enabled their residents to get solar and other energy efficiency upgrades through their property taxes and, and assessments. So I think um, I just want to put that plug in there, because as much as you want Kubi to do everything for you and you want your installers <laughs> to do everything for you, if you live in a municipality that doesn't currently have SEEP programming, you probably do need to put pen to paper and message your municipal officials and make sure that they put uh, the policy in place to enable you to add solar using your property taxes so um that is something that i think listeners will have to take action on unless they just happen to live in one of the four municipalities that's already moving on this
5: yeah and yeah, let's, that's, a, that's a great point Heather.
0: let's uh let's bring this full circle here uh, scott who painted his picture of his personal utopia of total self-sufficiency <laughs> with the grid and the in the car and everything he says, "Speaking of castles, I would also love to add a moat and a drawbridge." So he's so he's expanding the vision of his utopia. Uh, Jake Kubiski, uh, Heather McKenzie, and uh, Dr. Sarah Hastings, Simon uh, 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 McPherson. Why am I calling you McKenzie? Thanks so much for this. The three of you, absolutely fantastic conversation. I learned like a thousand things, and I'm sure the audience did too. Thanks so much. Have a awesome.
6: great day. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Yeah, that was yeah. really
0: that was really great. Um, This is a reminder that McBain Camera has been serving Alberta's photography community since 1949 with a number of Alberta locations. Uh, They've, you know, pulled out all the stops and taken all the steps so you can shop in confidence and shop safely, or you can go to mcbaincamera.com and live chat with their team. They want you to check out the Panasonic DC G9 camera. Why? Because it's built for speed. The G9 can lock focus in a fraction of a second. It shoots up to 20 frames per second in AFC, which is wild. It's also got that 5-axis image stabilization. It helps you get tack-sharp photos when shooting handheld, especially with those long lenses. When you order a Panasonic G9 at mcbanecamera.com and enter the promo code REALTALK, one word, you'll uh, at checkout receive a free spare battery with your order. Again, at mcbanecamera.com. Sam, can you call up that tweet for me? I was talking about Friesen Brothers yesterday and their brand new location in Edmonton, their 15th Alberta location. I was telling you about their sourdough cinnamon buns and how just incredible they are. They have their own cinnamon bun area. Their sourdough as well, made fresh in each of the stores. And I said, I don't know if the starter has a name. Well, it turns out that Jason Allen, who's part of the team at Friesen Brothers, was watching the show. And he reached out and he said, hey, bud, I just wanted to let you know that our Friesen Brothers sourdough starter, in fact, does have a name. It's Charlie. They killed Alpha and Bravo. Charlie was born November 17th of 2015 in Stony Plain, Alberta. Now lives in every one of the 15 stores, says Jason Allen. Love the show. Well, we love Friesen Brothers. Go see Jason and the team across the province. Friesen Brothers is Alberta grown and Alberta owned. The team at Westworld Computers has you in mind and has for the last 40 years that they've been family owned and operating in the province of Alberta. Westworld has your solution for all the newest Apple gear, but gently pre-owned as well software reloaded warranty tacked on top so you can buy with confidence and at a lower price if the year's been tough on you but you need to upgrade your gear whether it's a watch a phone or even a big iMac they've got you covered Daryl and his team at Westworld Computers. We wanted to leave some time to get to some of your emails that you've sent us through the show before we get to trash talk. That's how we wrap up every Friday. And Sam, I think it's worth, I think, I think the audience would get a kick out of knowing the dynamic that we have at play right now. We are on the clock. We're usually not on the clock. We are on the clock because in 15 minutes, my fantastic and lovely wife is dropping off our beautiful little boy. She's going to drop him off here at the studio and I get to hang out with him for the rest of the day. And I cannot imagine doing trash talk in front of my five-year-old so we gonna you we're know we're
1: gonna have to get through that yeah we
0: got to get through this yeah uh, Wyatt would be looking at me like he would see a side of daddy's he's never seen before he'd learn a few new words and we just can't have that happen at the, the delicate age of five Shalane reached out to talk at ryanjesperson.com she says after yesterday's show I went on Twitter uh, to see what had caused your ornery segment um, I hadn't been on the night before to Twitter and, and and you know and and I had been listening to a previous segment about how you put your phone down for Wyatt to be with him and to be present and How happy it made him! So I've been doing the same for my kids. So you know, instead of sitting on my phone all night, you know, I watched the new Raya and the Last Dragon with my family. Says Shalane. Anyway, I was saddened to have the same feeling after reading my uncle Larry's rants and extremist posts, and after seeing some of the people I follow on Twitter attack real talk. I felt deflated. You know, the nitpicking and the all-or-nothing views makes me think that maybe I should just throw in the towel and head back to the right says Shalane, which will never happen. But just like you, when I I read very conservative articles, I avoid the comments. And I'm also going to pay no heed to other haters from the other side, which sounds defeatist, but I don't want to become jaded. Shalane says, I know you guys get a ton of feedback. I actually have several emails for Real Talk in my draft folder. But today, I just wanted to let you guys know how much I need and appreciate the show. Just this week, I've had text conversations with my dad and my brother, emails with my Auntie Mo. I walked with my friend, Jenny, and we all talked about Real Talk and the different guests in different episodes. It's easy to tweet criticism and also to be silent, but I wanted you to know that Real Talk in my world is helping and it's changing me for the better, and I'm going to start sending more positive emails and posts, and I can't wait for today's show. That from Shalane. Wow. How about this from LJ, who signs off as one of your youngest fans? LJ is 21 says, I want to say off the top, I'm thankful for the show and the conversations you bring up. They're not always easy to navigate, but you do a service to this province by having this pod. And, I, and he says, this is LJ, says, I hope you don't apologize on the show tomorrow. He says, not that I don't respect the people that were coming at you and their opinions, but but I think some of the criticism is totally out of line. You know, to suggest that a conversation without women has no validity Saying a conversation can't be of substance because of the genders of the people involved is literally sexism. I think, you know, one of the reasons people were so upset is because some of the subject matter goes against their views. Keep up the amazing discussions and topics from LJ21. How about this from Alana? says, thanks for hosting Shannon Phillips the other day about that RC- or the uh, Lethbridge police surveillance. I still can't believe the Lethbridge police chief said that only God can judge his officers. I still can't believe it. Alana said, that's me talking, not Alana. Alana says, as, as one of Shannon Phillips constituents, I've been watching the story develop with increasing concern and outrage. And, and one thing that she brought up on Real Talk is that the discourse has grown like a malignant tumor across social media platforms, especially Facebook, it seems. I don't know about that, but Alana says she rightly pointed out that this toxic discourse frames everything in terms of war. And she brought up that these officers allowed their online lives to cloud their judgment and dictate their actions in their jobs in the real world. And one thing that absolutely scares the shit out of me, says Alana, is that support for the police like Back the Blue or Blue Lives Matter has has become so politicized that any criticism of police conduct is now viewed in terms of nationalism, often white nationalism, patriotism, loyalty. These things are not related. Alana says, in Alberta, I believe that the UCP has contributed to this discourse, often categorizing policy initiatives as either Albertan or un-Albertan, and it's so toxic, and she's right. She says, I know they'll never step up and be accountable for their contributions to that toxic discourse, but I wish... They would at least step back from it and stop fomenting it. Uh, We're seeing some truly dangerous consequences. Alana says, I believe you may have already done a show that discussed the polarization of political discourse, and it may be worth revisiting the topic in the future. Alana, absolutely. We're going to get to more of your comments. We have comments that, that, was it Mr. Dad, I think, that wrote in and and talked about childcare? We've got a ton of emails on that. We're going to get to those. We did, didn't we? Which was great. It lit a fire under people. We got a lot of responses there. And, and we're going to be talking about that on Monday. We're going to leave lots of breathing room for your emails on Monday. I wanted to remind you that the team at St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge right now, you're not going to find a better selection of the 2021 Jeep lineup, and that includes the brand new Cherokee Sport 4x4. Uh MSRP on that, just over 40 grand, 4475, but it's on sale right now for $34,990. Uh, These are the ones with the 3.2 liter V6, the nine speed auto. So they got a nice power plant in there. Heated leather wrapped steering wheels, heated front seats, remote starter and a touch screen with integrated Bluetooth and Apple CarPlay. You won't find a better selection of Jeep in Alberta than you will at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. The team at Clean Air Club wants your family to save money and breathe easy. And that's why at CleanAirClub.ca, they make it easy for you to sign up to get free, uh, not free, but discounted furnace filters. And they include a free gift. They support local. And you'll see what I mean when they drop it off. You give them the size of the filter. They put you on a schedule. They deliver what you need. And you pay less than you would in the store. You know, I mean, what's the argument against visiting CleanAirClub.ca? The team at Eden Landscaping is so geared up for spring. They've got a team ready to get going again on building your dream, making it come true. But first, you got to design it. And they're proud to have both sides of that process covered. They've been doing it for more than 20 years, and you can see their work at landscapeedmonton.ca. So whether you want one of those beautiful, intricate, interlocking stone patios, maybe it's a retaining wall, maybe you want, I don't know, something to reinvent your front yard, curb appeal is so huge we know in adding value into your home. You can invest in your home with the team at Eden Landscaping. And if your curb appeal is covered, your home is sold, and you're ready to move on, you're going to want to take your business to Alta Moving and Storage. They've got these pod-style moving containers that make moving way easier and way less stressful. That moving truck's not out front of the house. All the neighbors are annoyed. You're not ready to go. Plus, you haven't had a chance to really say goodbye to the place where you brought your baby girl home and now you're leaving with the pod-style moving container. You can leave at your own pace. Move without the stress. With Alta Moving and Storage, you can check out altastorage.com. Ca, And then there's the team at Local Waste. The team at Local Waste, I love what Sam's face does when I talk about Local Waste on a Friday. The team at Local Waste for more than a quarter century has been talking trash. That's right. They love to work with businesses large and small. And they're local, which means that you call them, you talk to them, you refer to them by their first name. They return your calls. You don't sit on hold on the 1-800 number and then talk to somebody that has absolutely no vested interest in your circumstance. Why not keep your business on waste management local with Local Waste Services? You know, you can check out localwaste.ca and through the week, you can also... Type local waste or trash talk into the subject line of an email to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Why? Because every Friday, the team at Local Waste presents a little something we call TRASH Talk! Yeah, that's right. These are rants and raves submitted to our email inbox talk at com from real talkers like Clean Sidewalk Brent, who says, you know, in response to trash talk last week, I love that they're building off each other here. He says, somebody wrote in upset about their neighbor snow blowing at six in the morning. You know, some of us have to be at work early. Some of us don't want to come home to trampled snow. And if it was out of spite, you would know. Plus, Yes, Pineapple is a delicious pizza topping that from Clean Sidewalk Brands. This next one is from Ali. Ali says, putting aside the miracle we're living through of having several vaccines approved and available less than a year after the pandemic was declared, while we're at it, let's put aside let's try the mind-blowing incompetence of this provincial government I really don't know what's going on right now. Who knows who's going to fall into this high-risk group 2B category? We need to know stress release is important. Is asthma on the list? What about patients with heart valve replacement? Or somebody on blood thinners due to blood clotting issues? Or fibromyalgia? I could go on and on. The lack of information coming from this government's infuriating. While our lives are all dramatically different than they were a year ago some of us still have responsibilities we can't drop everything and pivot every time the government decides to share information with we the people it's frustrating every step every new thing every change appears to be a reaction to something from this government instead of anticipating next steps i want more gretzky type action and less of whatever the fuck this is that from ali how about this from Oh boy, I'm nervous about this one Simon Pierre Poulin writes in Says Jesperson, I have no idea what your French Sounds like, but if you happen to like Fancy challenges, here is my Trash talk suggestion for this week In French I do like fancy challenges If this was a real great tea I was sipping, it would fit better he says, in Alberta right now, they're a waiting list to send your kid to French immersion and a shortage of French teachers. The Campus St. Jean at the University of Alberta, the only place west of Winnipeg where you can get a degree to teach French language. Now, the Kenny government's cut to Campus St. Jean is so important that up to 40% of classes offered are in jeopardy. So. The French-Canadian Association of Alberta took the government to court. They asked for $1.2 million in funding, so no programs would disappear. Instead, the UCP gave $1.4 million to cover legal fees to fight it. He says this is purely ideological, resonates very strongly in the French community here at home, from Grand Prairie to Bonny Doon, but across French-speaking communities in Canada. So, Ryan, here's your assignment. I'm going to do my best, and then I'll translate. C'est bien le but de la mort. S'il existe un politicien albertain qui compréhende implément bien l'implication de ce geste, ce noir et méprisant, c'est bien vous qui avez administré au fédéral qui maîtrissez la langue française et qui comprenez fort bien les enjeux d'une francophonie fragilisée par des décisions préjudiciables comme celle-ci. Quel honte pour votre gouvernement et quelle embarras pour l'Alberta qui, encore une fois, Se retrouve à la carte de la modernité, de la justice et de la valeur canadienne les plus fondamentales. Could you possibly be shittier? Is there one Alberta politician who fully understands the implication of this sly and contemptuous move? It's you, Premier, a former federal minister mastering French so well you do truly understand our francophony weakened by damaging decisions like yours. What a shame for your government. What an embarrassment for Alberta, which once again finds itself isolated from modernity, justice, and fundamental Canadian values. That from Simon Pierre Poulin. This one from Peter. Peter says, uh, Ryan, I know you've been following and talking about the David and Colette Stefan story. I hate even using their names because I don't want to bring them fame. I don't know if you ever intended on it, but never have them on your show. Never talk about them outside my letter. We need to talk, though, about their son Ezekiel. The poor boy will never be able to live in peace with his death being handled like such a farce. Our injustice system is proving to be that. Ezekiel deserves dignity respect accountability he says i don't need coffee today boys this situation gives me enough fuel to get through the rest of 2021 signed a pissed off peter and this From C in Calgary, and this one's salty, so earmuffs, kids. C in Calgary says, I fucking hate it when leftists or the left is hated on because I consider myself to be far left. Due to my job, I listen to a lot of podcasts, most of them political. I've listened to every show of yours, Ryan, since the beginning of January. Thank you. Says, I also listen to the people you call dumb fucks the other day. There's a network of shows, but I can say I give them at least 10 hours of your time a month, sometimes more. I didn't love your dumb fucks fucks comment but i hated what was coming at you more i feel riled up too i feel like they're saying i'm a fucking conservative for listening to you which is the worst thing you could ever call me it feels like they've never listened to your show and they should shut the fuck up I saw tweets liked by their media accounts and hosts, ones like, how about we just never talk about that podcast again? It didn't seem like they were being objective and judging your show's content because you worked for Chorus and interviewed Danielle Smith, which, by the way, did not make me conservative. I appreciate the variety of guests you have on your shows. Real talkers on YouTube have have been roasted conservatives. They've roasted the conservatives you've had on and you've read their comments out loud as they chat. It is so edgy to hate on a show that's actually plugging people into Alberta politics, isn't it? We fucking helped make the government back down on coal mining. Okay, not all the way, but isn't it good to gain a little ground? Shouldn't we keep coming together and having conversations to learn from one another? Ryan, no offense meant by this, but sometimes you're the perfect fool because you learn in real time on your show along with everybody listening. Those moments are like a bridge. What do the haters want? You to shut it all down? Ain't gonna happen. That from C in Calgary. Who's right? We ain't going to. Anywhere except for away for the weekend. We're back live Monday, 8:30 mountain time, and we'll t- 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 talk to you then.